book of 1 Samuel chapter number 16, or grab your copy of the story and turn to chapter 11. It is hard for me to believe that this is week 11 of our journey through the story, and I know we got some new timers, first timers with us today, some newcomers, but for many of us for the last 11 weeks, we've been on a journey, and this is going to be our final week of the journey for 2014. Uh, We're going to take a six-week break for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year. Next week's going to be a very special service, uh, a baby dedication Sunday. Uh, Adam and Cody and Shelly are in in charge of big church next week. I'm going to be hanging out in junior church next week. If uh, you have a child that would uh, uh, be uh, appropriate to be dedicated next week and you don't know anything about that, see me afterwards. I'd love to get you connected with Adam and Cody and Shelly. It's going to be a week you will not want to forget. A couple quick announcements before we get to our message for this morning. Next week is also important for two other reasons. Our ministry action plan meeting takes place at 9.30 a.m. in the Family Life Center. That's our budget meeting. If you want to know what the budget looks like, looks like for 2015 come on out to the family life center at 9 30 next sunday morning and the next sunday night is our cama thanksgiving service i love getting together with the other christians in clinton and dewitt county and being reminded that we're not the only christians but that we are christians only and we gather together to uh, thank god for the blessings he's poured down upon us that's next sunday night and then the day before thanksgiving thanksgiving eve service 6.30 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. It's a pretty casual service, 45, 50 minutes, where we sing songs of thanksgiving. We read scriptures that tell of how we should be thankful and why we should be thankful. You're going to hear some testimonies uh, that night. It's going to be a good time. That's Wednesday the 26th. December is an important month at FCC every year. Grab and Go is on Saturday the 13th. The choir cantata, we're doing something different this year. We're asking everyone to come at 9.30 a.m. on the 14th for the choir cantata. I'd love to pack this sanctuary to uh, allow our adult choir to really bless us with the music of Christmas, the worship of Christmas. So spread the word. That's going to be a special day. Uh, The 21st will be a new Sunday at FCC. We're calling it Nativity Sunday, and I'm hoping to have as many as 100 different nativity scenes Uh, all throughout our building, in the foyer, in the Family Life Center. Uh, So if you have a nativity scene that you'd like to bring that day, we're going to have tables set up, and the message that day is from the book of Revelation, my nativity scene is better than your nativity scene. So you'll have to come to church that day, Christmas Eve on the 24th, and then a one-service Sunday, last Sunday of the year on the 28th, and that will be a family Sunday. It's going to be a great time as we all gather together. Where have we been? Uh, when it comes to the story this fall, we started week one with the beginning, creation and the fall and the flood and the terrible sting of sin, the stain of sin and how it changed everything. Then we looked at Abraham, then we looked at Joseph, then three weeks looking at Moses and, and how God miraculously continued to bless in a great and mighty way. Joshua, week seven, the conquest of the promised land. Week eight, the judges cycle. You remember the judges cycle? What is it? Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Six different times through the book of Judges, we see this cycle unfold in the life of God's people. Week nine was the book of Ruth, Bethlehem love story. We've got another Bethlehem love story that we're going to look at in about a month. Last week, we dove into the book of 1 Samuel and looked at the life of Hannah. What did Hannah want more than anything else? She wanted a baby. She said, God, just give me a baby, and God gave her a baby. 
and he turned out to be Samuel. Samuel became one of the great leaders in Israel's history. And also last week we saw how God answered the cry of his people. His people said, we want to be like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. We don't like being different. And God says, I'm going to give you a king. It's not going to turn out like you want it to, but I will give you a king. And the first king of Israel was a handsome man. He was a head taller than anyone else in the land, and his name was Saul. And we saw the beginning and really uh, the devastation of the reign of Saul. And that brings us to chapter 11. That brings us to the life of David. And, and this week we're going to try to do in about 25 minutes what we took the entire summer of 2007 to do here at FCC. And that's look at the life of King David, at least the first part of King David. So I'm going to give you four snapshots, four portraits of David that hopefully will help you understand the life of David and why David was considered the greatest king Israel ever experienced and maybe the greatest leader that the Old Testament uh, shares with us. And part one, snapshot one, is this. David is chosen to become the next king of Israel because of his heart. Because of his heart. Uh, I heard a story this week of three golfers who got struck by lightning and went to heaven. And at the pearly gates, they were a little nervous as they got ready to go into heaven about whether or not there would be golf in heaven or not. And St. Peter great, greeted them at the gate and said, not only is there golf in heaven, there's incredible golf in heaven, but there's just one stipulation. There's just one rule. Whatever you do when you're playing golf, do not hit a duck. If you hit a duck, you're not going to be very happy. So the threesome goes out, and you know, after a while, one of them does the unthinkable. As he's playing golf, he hits a duck. And the next thing you know, here's St. Peter with a very homely-looking woman, some people would say very unattractive, and grabs the golfer that hit the duck and handcuffs the golfer to the, to the unattractive woman for all of eternity. And he's really discouraged. He's not very happy about that. But they keep on playing golf, the, the two friends, and after a while, the second guy hits a duck. I mean, who would have thought such a thing was possible? And sure enough, here comes St. Peter, and St. Peter has another very, very unattractive woman and handcuffs the very unattractive woman to golfer number two. Well, this golfer number three is thinking, I'm going to play golf for the rest of all eternity, but whatever I do, I will not ever hit a duck. And to a surprise one day, this beautiful, gorgeous, incredible woman comes and St. Peter handcuffs the, the beautiful, gorgeous woman to golfer number three. And he says, man, this is awesome. I get to spend all of eternity with this beautiful, attractive woman. What did I do? And before he could say anything else, the woman spoke up and said, I hit a duck. <laughs> it's really not that funny. It's kind of juvenile, but the reality is that it kind of describes how we look at people. I think that describes uh, how, how we break down people that we encounter. We're outward appearance kind of people. Our culture today is designed to accentuate and articulate the, the pretty people, the attractive people. And the people that aren't so pretty, the people that maybe don't have the outward appearance that a model has or a movie star has or, or, or someone else might have, uh, we look at them a little more skeptical. We say, well, maybe just go stand over there. David learned firsthand, Samuel learned firsthand that that's not how the Lord rolls. 
That's not what the Lord is all about. And in 1 Samuel 16, we see the situation. Saul, last week as we ended, was rejected by the Lord. Now, he's not going to finish reigning as king for like 14 years. He's going to continue to reign as king. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord said to Samuel, I'm done with him. It's over. Lights are out. I'm done with him. Go and anoint the next king of Israel. And so Samuel uh, is told by the Lord to go to Bethlehem. We studied Bethlehem a couple weeks ago when we looked at the story of Ruth and Boaz. We're back in Bethlehem because Samuel is told to go to the house of Jesse. And he goes to the house of Jesse and he says, I've got, I've got good news. It's an important time. We're going to worship and I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel. And so Jesse's excited, and Jesse's boys are excited, and they gather them all together, and they're in a big line. And the oldest is a, a young man by the name of Eliab. Now, we don't know a lot about Eliab other than the fact that he was very well-built, and he was handsome, and he was the oldest. He was the oldest of the sons of Jesse. And so all of that would lead you and me to think, it would lead Samuel to think that he must be the one. He's going to be the next king of Israel. In fact, in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, When Eliab arrived, Samuel looked at him and said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He's got it all. He's very impressive. And look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And then just one by one, son number two, Abinadab, son number three, Shema, four, five, six, seven. Samuel saying, no, it's not happening. They're not the one. At this point, Samuel's probably getting a little frustrated. He's wondering if he got the right message for the Lord. Are you sure it was Jesse of Bethlehem and it wasn't someone else? So he gathers Jesse. He says, Jesse, what's going on? All seven have been rejected by the Lord. Do you have any other sons? And he says, well, there's the youngest, David, the shepherd boy. He's out with the flocks. Samuel says, we're not sitting down until he gets here. Go and get him now. And it says that when David arrived, he was ruddy with a fine appearance, handsome features, and the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so here's my question for you this morning. How's Eliab feeling about that, do you think? What's Abinadab thinking? What's Shema thinking? What, what are the sons thinking when the youngest, the baby, the one that always gets his way. The one that didn't even have to come to this worship service. He got to just hang out with the sheep all afternoon. He's the one? He's the one? Are you kidding me? He's the one. Because the Lord doesn't look at things like we do. The Lord isn't about the outward appearance. He's all about the heart. So our takeaway this morning is this. It's not on the outside that matters. It's on the inside that matters. And that's a hard challenge for Christ followers in 2014 because we're outward appearance kind of people. We want to say that we're not. We want to say that we're different from our culture. We want to say that the outward appearance doesn't, doesn't matter. But what would you have thought today if I would have showed up in shorts and flip-flops and a, a sweatshirt? 
you would have probably thought it's snowing outside. Why do you have shorts on? But other than that, you would have said, you know, that's not, that's not acceptable. Shorts and flip-flops from a preacher? Are you kidding me? If we're not careful, we find ourselves an awful lot like Samuel in this text. An awful lot like the people in this text where we're outward appearance kind of people. Well, the story of David continues on, and David finds himself in service to King Saul. He's playing the harp, and Saul's got all kinds of problems. Um, He is haunted literally uh, by demons. He's haunted literally by spirits. It says in our text, evil spirits from the Lord, and that's a whole sermon in itself that we're not going to dive in today, but the problem is, the, the, the point is this, Saul is a troubled individual, and Saul can only find comfort when David plays his harp. And so we learn right here that David is a very, very special person. But our next account is probably the most famous account of David, and it's the story of David and Goliath. And here we see that David, he's convicted to fight the battle that no one will fight because of his courage. Here's the situation. The Israelites and the Philistines, they've been at war for a long time. They hate each other. They are enemies. And the Philistines now have an upper hand because they have a champion a fighter by the name of Goliath, nine feet tall. He's never lost a battle. In fact, my hunch is he's rarely fought a battle because no one wants to mess with the man. Nine feet tall. He's a lean, mean fighting machine. And what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is for a period of 40 days, the Israelites would line up with their, their, their troops on one side, the Philistines would line up with their troops on another, Goliath would come out and he would taunt God's people. He would say, bring me anyone. It's mono e mono. It's one-on-one. We're going to fight, and we're going to settle it now, once and for all. And day after day, for 40 days, no one is ready to fight that battle. Now, who should be ready to fight that battle? Saul should be willing to fight that battle. Don't forget, he's a head taller than anyone else. And if you've studied the life of Saul, you know that he's had much success in battle. He's been victorious time and time again, but he's hiding in the tent. He wants no part of it because he knows it's a suicide mission. He knows that if he goes out, if anyone goes out, they are destined to lose. But David, the shepherd boy, he's at home tending to the flocks, and Father Jesse says, hey, take some food, take some staples to your brothers who are fighting. Eliab, Abinadab, Shema. So David goes, and David sees this spectacle take place. And I love David's response. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the army of the Lord? He's ready to fight. He's 15, 16, 17 years of age. He's got no business being in battle. He's supposed to be tending to the flock. But he can't believe that this this foreigner, this uncircumcised Philistine, would dare defy the army. And so he goes to Saul and he says, I'm ready to fight. Now the older brothers, they're not very excited about that. In fact, they even call David conceited. He doesn't care. He continues on over and over and over again and says, let me go and fight. Saul finally relents. He says, I've got no other options, but I'm going to give you my armor. You got to wear my armor if you're going to go into battle. That's a bad dude you're getting ready to go fight. And so David tries to put on the armor, and what happens? It doesn't fit. 
He's 16 years old. He's not wearing any armor. And he says, Saul, I know this doesn't make any sense to you, but I'm going into battle and I'm going to win because me against Goliath, not going to happen. But me and God against Goliath, I am destined to win. When the battle gets ready to take place, Goliath can't believe that they're sending a boy to fight him. And it says he curses David through his God. That shows us that he's a person of faith. He, He doesn't trust the one true God, but he's a person of faith. And I love what David has to say. Jump down to verse 45 if you're following in 1 Samuel 17. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This is a passage of scripture that reminds us that the Bible is not always G-rated. This is an R-rated section of the Bible here. I'm going to cut off your head. Today, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine armies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Catch this, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. If you were placing odds at that point on the likelihood that shepherd boy with a slingshot and a couple stones could defeat the nine-foot undefeated champion, Goliath, uh, Vegas probably wouldn't even take a bet on that. And by the way, don't gamble. That's a bad proposition. Don't, Don't get into that. But the point is this. The Lord delivered the victory. Reading on, it says the Philistine moved closer to attack him, so David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell face face down onto the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, He struck down the Philistine and killed him. And if I read on, I mean, he cuts off the head and, you know, he parades around. We won't go down that road this morning. The point is this, nothing is impossible for God. That seemed like an impossible battle. That seemed like no one could beat the giant. And so let me ask you today, what in your life right now is impossible? As you gathered to worship today, you said, you know, that's impossible. I could never climb that mountain. I could never overcome that obstacle. My family could never fill in the blank. My children could never fill in the blank. My spouse could never fill in the blank. What is so big in your world that it's impossible for you to overcome? Nothing is impossible for God. Now, don't misunderstand me. This isn't health and wealth gospel. This isn't pray a prayer and you're going to go from welfare to millionaire overnight. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying pray a prayer and all your problems go away and you're living large for the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying sometimes as Christians, we just have a real defeatist attitude. And whether it's a a cultural issue that we're facing or it's a, a personal issue that we're bad or just sin in our life. We use the word impossible. That's impossible. I could never overcome that. Friends, nothing is impossible for God. 
And we're going to hear that exact phraseology in about five weeks when we study Luke chapter 1 and the story of just a really average teenage girl by the name of Mary. Number three, let's move on. David converges on the throne while Saul self-destructs. See, following this victory over Goliath, David, I mean, he's a rock star, and I use that word in the most holy kind of way. People are digging David. Now, they still follow the king. They still follow Saul, but David, he is the man. And that's really articulated in the very next chapter, chapter 18, uh, as a battle is over and as the troops are coming back into the city, they start singing this song. And I won't sing it for you today, but I will read it. It says, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. And that's a great picture of what's playing out in the life of Saul. He can't believe how blessed David is. And from here on, David is going to be ascending toward the throne. And Saul, just a little bit by little bit by little bit, is descending. He's self-destructing. For time's sake, I won't take you chapter by chapter through this journey, other than to say that through it all, David has opportunity to kill Saul on a couple of occasions. And he won't do it. His soldiers beg him. They say, David, God has delivered Saul into your hands. End it now. He would kill you if he could. David won't do it because he's a man of integrity. David won't do it because he said, Saul is still the Lord's anointed. And so for a period of years, you've got this challenge. David is in hiding for a while. David is on the run for a while. But the one constant is this. The Lord continues to bless David. And Saul continues to self-destruct. And so the takeaway that in this short little section here that I want you to see is that God always honors authenticity and integrity. I'm not sure our world today, I'm not even sure our country today always honors authenticity and integrity. I think sometimes the people that we prop up, the people that find themselves in um, national leadership positions, they don't always give us the picture of authenticity or integrity. Think of how many people you know that drew a line in the stand on, on an issue here, and a year later they're on the other side of the issue because of a poll that was taken. Let me remind you here, David, the man after God's own heart, he's who he claimed to be. He's as straight as an arrow. And God honors him time and time again as he converges on the throne. Well, I'm going to jump way ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I'm going to fill in some gaps. Saul eventually is no longer king because he dies. He takes his own life, actually. And, and David, even though I might be celebrating if I'm David, David actually mourns for Saul. And there's this period of kind of civil war within the country and David's ruling part of it, the house of Saul is ruling part of it, and it's a, a really dicey time, but eventually David becomes king of Israel. He is anointed and actually inaugurated as the second king of Israel. And in the midst of that, he, he has made Jerusalem the capital city. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? We talked about the Ark of the Covenant probably four, five, six weeks ago and how, how important the Ark was. David decides it's time to take the Ark to Jerusalem tired of having it away. 
And in the process of doing that, a tragedy happens. Uh, they don't exactly follow God's instructions. Instead of carrying it like they're supposed to, they've got it on a cart. Um, the oxen stumble. The ark starts to fall. Some guy named Uzzah, Uzzah, however you pronounce his name, tries to be a good guy and grab the ark, which I would probably do. You would probably do what happens to him. Boom, he drops dead because it's an irreverent act. I don't get that necessarily. God's ways are God's ways. That's why we need to, to follow the ways of God. David's disappointed. He's sad. He, he says, I, I, I can't touch it. If Uzzah can't do it, I can't do it. Eventually, David gets over that, and he brings the ark to Jerusalem. And that's the final snapshot I want you to see this morning. David consecrates himself to the Lord, and he receives an unconditional covenant blessing. This, uh, this next passage of Scripture is, um, I smile when I read it, because it's so against who we are. It's so against our culture today. We're pretty proper people. For some of us, it's a stretch to kind of raise our hands and worship. You know, we feel a little weird when we do that, because, man, what's my neighbor going to think? What's that person, you know, that, that, that I work with going to think? What are those people that I go to high school with going to think? And yet David shows us here how important worship is in his life. As the ark is coming into the city, here's what our text tells us, 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, his underwear, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark from the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. If I were going to tell you today that we were going to do a 2 Samuel chapter 6 kind of thing, and we were going to do a dance before the Lord through the sanctuary in our underwear, um, what would happen? This place would be empty, right? There'd be like three people here, right? And, and we've got counselors available to talk to those three. Um, no, we'd be, we'd be like, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not dancing before the Lord in my underwear. David danced before the Lord with all his might. I'm not even sure what that looks like. You know, when, when I did a triathlon, that, that took all my might. And I got to tell you, when I was done with that, I, I didn't want to do anything. Did David dance that hard? Was it like running a marathon? Was it like working a 12-hour shift to the point that you, you can barely even sit down in your truck to go home? What, what's that look like? I don't know. But here's what I know. Worship, David said, is the most important value in my life. And so we're not doing an underwear dance today, but I do want to challenge you with this, this takeaway. Worship cannot be overvalued. Worship cannot be overvalued. How do you look at worship? You know, growing up at my home church, I, I really struggled to value worship. I mean, I sang the songs. We had hymnals back in those days. It's before screens. It's before drum sets and keyboards. And I mean, we had an organ and a piano. And I mean, I even knew a lot of the songs by heart. But you know what my problem was? I thought worship was only a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock kind of thing. Wor worship's your life. Worship's who you are on Sunday morning, but it's who you are on Monday morning and Friday night and Wednesday at lunch. It's who you are in the locker room. It's who you are in the break room. It's who you are when no one's watching. It's who you are when everyone's watching. And David said, I just don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to dance before the Lord with all my might, with all 
my might. And so I leave you today with three takeaways. Three takeaways. Number one is this. It's not what you think. We're outward appearance people, and it doesn't impress the Lord. It's all about the heart. So maybe you need to do a heart check. How's your heart today? Number two, trust and obey. The David and Goliath narrative, it's just, it's crazy. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And that's the point. The battle belongs to the Lord. So stop trying to do the heavy lifting all by yourself. And then finally, let go and let God. Let's get back to the heart of worship. This week, what would it look like if 200 of us, three, how many are here? If as we went to our jobs and we went to school and as we just went through life, if we said this week, more than any other in 2014, my life is going to be an act of worship. On the basketball court, on the playground, in the break room, in the heat of the meeting, my life is going to be an act of worship. Bottom line is this for you today. David, the young man who sought after God's own heart, is a model for all of us. I don't know about you, I want to be a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. God, thanks for today and the chance to look at David. And for a lot of us, we've read these accounts. We know the narrative. But help us to be people that never lose sight of the truth. That never forget that it's not about the outward. It's all about the heart. That even when something seems impossible, nothing is impossible for you. And that at the end of the day, nothing warms your heart more than true, authentic worship on Sundays and Mondays and Fridays and Saturdays. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is invitation time as it is every Sunday. And I think we're going to sing a song, I Have Decided. And if you... uh, If you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ, I invite you this morning to come forward.